Hello everyone, and welcome once again to the Bible Prophecy Masterclass. In this 20th episode in our multi-part series involving a thorough consideration of the 18th chapter of the Book of the Revelation, we are going to move, by way of a few more introductory remarks, into what might be termed Pandora's Box, or Part 2 of the discussion begun in Episode Number 19, The Achilles Heel of the USA. The idea espoused in this study is such that if an end-times mighty nation was raised up by God to be the protector and guarantor of Israel's passage and preservation from its reformation as a nation to the outbreak of the events of the Apocalypse of John, and, if that same powerhouse of a nation is slated by the same God who is the brain behind her being has so decreed that she can and will be destroyed in relatively short order, against all odds, then, the nations tasked with that dangerous, and perhaps, thankless, preoccupation have, at the very least, at first glance, a virtually insurmountable problem. Nonetheless, with a combined industrial might at the very least comparable to hers, all agree, unwittingly, in full accord with the plans and will of the God they don't know, that it is a task that must, can be and will be done. How to kill a superpower? I've got something for you, but don't call it love. Introduction. Christians the world over do not realize that. The same book that prophesied and promised the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations and captivity, and the Roman diaspora. The book that prophesies and promises the destruction of the Russo-Islamic European Confederacy. That same book with that same assurance and certitude, guarantees a sudden, relentless, thorough destruction of the greatest, mightiest and most prosperous nation of all time a nation whose wealth, might and standing on the world stage and in the eyes of all who behold, make it a superpower, as compared to all others. They do not know this, because they do not study, nor will they submit to instruction. I.e., they will not listen to the voice of the God, whom they claim to love and serve. While little active effort will be exhausted bringing her to repentance, the fact of her prospective desolation will not come without ample warning as to her vulnerability. Strong though she is tied now to the world at large, at the hips of her markets on the one hand, and her need for the lube of foreign, low-interest loans on the other, from a world as deeply indebted to each other as she is to them. She is neither invincible, nor is she impregnable. Toward this end, her wake-up calls have been many. Consider the section titled, Pandora's Box, page 170. Birth of the Superpower. Rise of Babylon the Great. During the early days of the Church, great strides were made to restore some sense of normalcy to everyday life in a world accustomed to living that life without God. God, who in past times allowed men to do as they pleased, is now calling all men to live a life of repentance, according to Dr. Luke, in Acts chapter 17 verse 30. The easiest, most accessible route toward that end was the slaughter of all the Christians born then and who had begun to turn the world, upside down, with their teaching and their preaching. Secular Rome, Revelation chapter 16, and its Caesars, followed by the Roman Catholic Church, the great whore, on the one hand, Revelation chapter 17, under the popes, were, essentially, the undisputed masters of this trade. Herein, the voice of God, and, thereby the intrusion of God into the affairs of men, for the benefit of men, was, for a time, silenced. Unable to keep the empire afloat at any level commensurate to its former glory days, Roman emperors are said to have vanished behind the scenes ditching their crowns, and donning mitres only to re-emerge as the popes with drawn swords, making merchandise of the god of whom they could not be rid, according to some, 
that is, like the late Jack Van Imp. The popes were actually, initially, the religious leaders of the church at Rome, i.e., the church bishops, who were the privileged landowners, who attained political power by default. That is, they were the ones to whom the people were naturally inclined to defer to for leadership, in the absence of the emperors, after the empire fell. They waited in bloodbaths supplied by the slit throats of believers and Jews alike who would not serve God, per their apostate ritual. In this mode, in this manner, being her religious aspect, the woman lived on. Only a shadow of her former self, she has for centuries existed, actively nurturing, occasionally stoking and stroking, primping and preening, as it were, the seven-headed political remains from the ghost of her past, the powerless corpse of a long-dead beast. A full-blown harlot now, blood-soaked, and a mother-to-be to more to come, she has lived a murderer's dream, in a true-to-life tale of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Across 1,500 years of dark ages, now called the Middle Ages, the purely religious persona of the woman on the now-long-dead beast of Revelation chapter 17, the great whore has come slashing, robbing and pillaging in the name of God. During this time, none was allowed the privilege of knowing or serving God, except as she specified. On her orders, anywhere within her jurisdiction, any common person was denied the privilege of any education by which he might read the Bible for himself. Hereby, she controlled and was allowed to stay the hands of God the Almighty. Thus, for these reasons, as such, there were essentially no Christians between roughly 500 AD and the years prior to and immediately following Martin Luther's 95 Theses. The Passing of the Baton. Being German and himself Catholic, his own anti-Semitic misgiving, and prejudice against Jews notwithstanding, it was Martin Luther's Reformation, which would, more or less, lead to a stay of the advance of the Holy Roman Empire. His effort opened the doors to the education of the masses and personal Bible reading. In addition, it laid the foundation for the resurrection and rebirth of the Church, so that it could thrive once again and grow according to God's agenda, somewhat. At the same time, however, Luther's work admitted or invited fresh opportunity for attack on the credibility of the Bible, so as to bloodlessly eradicate the reality of God through education, that is, through reason, the sciences and archaeology, enlightenment, higher criticism, modernism, and technological advances which continue right up to this very hour. Thus, it might rightly be argued that a lion's share of this fresh assault was carried in viruses of reason spun by a series of baby harlots birthed within the loins of the great whore, which in turn in time led to the birthing of, modern, political, economical, Babylon the Great. Thus, the baton was passed on, as it were, whereby, old-school, Babylonian thought and thinking calling for brute force, backed by swords of steel, was supplanted by a relatively novel psychological and intellectual approach to God containment and eradication, based upon the sword of reason. See sidebar below, coup d'état, page 170. In this new combined attack by the great whore and her infant harlots, God is kept always before the people, yet, conveniently out of reach so that they never know or serve the true and living God of the Bible. Ironically, while little of the Bible's history and nothing of the Bible's many claims having physics or scientific overtones could have been proved by any theologian, Christian Bible scholars or preachers, teachers of any stripe, anywhere prior to the turn into the 20th century, all of this renewed antagonism has at best backfired whatever its successes, on the other hand. 
far from destroying the Bible's credibility through reason, modernism, education, etc., thereby eliminating God from the equation of daily living. Practically every claim has been established and is now verifiable by these very disciplines whatever has not been proven, will be soon. Therefore, we conclude then that, although God was discarded as unnecessary during World War II and declared dead in Babylon during the 60s, all the evidence in the entire world shows him to be very much alive. He stands ready, eager to and able to deal with those of his enemies who have sought to shut him out of existence altogether, on the one hand, or to make merchandise of his own name where they could not, on the other hand, God, to many, is big business, representing an industry worth over $5 billion, today. One by one, the most prominent of all these eschatological adversaries are to be brought down to ashes and ruin most notably Babylon the Great, strongest ever, and the most prosperous of them all. Who is Babylon the Great? The Bible anticipates, with virtual longing, the demise of this hated, and loathsome entity known to God symbolically as Babylon the Great. In addition to ancient Babylon of OT Bible fame, Babylon is mentioned at least two other times in Scripture. Most Bible scholars and so-called prophecy experts see two. Only one, Revelation chapter 18, is literal, more or less, the other figurative, Revelation chapter 17, in that usage of the term merely describes the air, attitude or the atmosphere surrounding another despicable entity, Rome, on account of the presence and influence of an apostate fundamentally religious institution known to God as the Great Whore, each of which are also on God's radar screen for total destruction religious and political. That same entity is referred to as, Babylon, on its own merit. Both are separate entities, each existing in its own right, yet, under the same banner. Both are destined to be decimated completely annihilated per the mind and will of Almighty God. Per Revelation chapter 17. The woman and the great whore. One will be destroyed during the apocalyptic period, during its latter 3.5 years before the return of Israel's Messiah, in two phases. 1. The great whore by the beast and his ten-nation confederacy. At the commencement of his rise and reign. Revelation chapter 17 verses 16 to 17. 2 the woman, the birthplace and the permanent abode of the great whore, following the demise of her political persona, by the hand of God, during the global earthquake, near the middle of the latter 3.5 years before Christ's return. Revelation chapter 16 verses 19 to 20. The other, Babylon the Great Revelation chapter 18, will be a truly global, cosmopolitan entity indeed, immensely wealthy, far eclipsing Rome in global scope, power, and influence, having many people and nations cow-towing to her, albeit, without normal path to dominance through war and tyranny. Furthermore, this last of the Babylons will be wiped out first, well in advance of that period, though it too is portrayed as undeniably, and unmistakably a high-profiled, internationally recognized and respected, well-connected, very prominent, very powerful, although an entirely eschatological entity being as well a potent player in global economics and politics. There are a total of three figurative applications of the term Babylon in the book of the Revelation of the Lord Jesus the Christ. One simply references a specific entity by the pseudonym Babylon, i.e., the woman or Rome of Revelation chapter 17, while of the other two applications, Babylon the Great refers to that same entity in a different light, that is, the woman or Rome with the inscription written across her forehead, 
Revelation chapter 17. Whereas the second identifies a powerful end times entity. Revelation chapter 18. Of the three, each is known by its own uniquely distinct, divinely tailored profile. These identifying characteristics reveal the following. One of those can only be Rome, as representative of all of Italy, thus it is a political establishment, and will be destroyed last. Revelation chapter 16. So rated and named because of Vatican City, seat of the great whore. Revelation chapter 17. Which, of itself represents both a primarily religious institution, which is also an internationally recognized political institution. It is this primarily religious aspect of Babylon, to be wiped out first. She is recognized all over the world as an independent nation smallest in the world, occupying all of 108.7 acres as it sits well within the confines of the city of Rome itself. From there she, through her pope, exerts religious authority and control over more than one billion souls, as she jealously seeks ways to curtail Protestant activities, within any domain under her jurisdiction. At the same time, this great whore through this same pontiff, rubs shoulders on the secular stage with world leaders, as a political force. The Vatican is the seat of the great whore, and it is on her account that Rome has stenciled across her forehead the expression, Mystery, Babylon the Great, Revelation chapter 17. Not to be confused with Babylon the Great, Revelation chapter 18. Lastly, that Babylon the Great whose destruction will be celebrated throughout the heavens, will actually be the first to be destroyed. This is the one portrayed in chapter 18 of the book of the Revelation. The particulars surrounding the identity of Babylon the Great infer that she is someone unique among all of history's global powers. These reveal the following about her. It is here that any possibility of confusing her with the woman, Revelation chapter 17, is precluded. 1. Religion is an integral part of her makeup, as evinced by God's use of the term, fornication. Its use is not arbitrary an OT metaphorical concept used of God to describe Israel's infidelity as she, as a nation, chose to prostrate herself to other kings of the earth, their religions and false gods. It is used here to signify, similarly, that Babylon has a reputation as one who should have had a positive relationship with him, but has irreparably tarnished that relationship. Moreover, that she has, fornicated, seems to infer that he, as with Israel, takes full responsibility for her existence. 2. She is rich and fabulously wealthy, and, as such she is equally conceited, haughty, vain-glorious, self-satisfied, not to mention, egotistical. 3. The, souls of men, adorn her treasures, no doubt a reference in these times not just to slavery, which still exists today, and people smuggling for prostitution and cheap labor, but to the millions upon millions of unborn babies killed annually, all around the world as well as in Babylon, to promote sexual pleasure, without responsibility, for cosmetics, by which women beautify themselves at the expense of human life, and to fuel farms of stem cells to give life to those who refuse to die. Her wealth and merchandise stems from free trade with the nations of the world, so that many merchants around the globe have grown immensely wealthy, amassing great fortunes but, to a very large, very real degree, are hopelessly dependent upon her so that men of the world virtually bow to her, not to God. Without her, they know that they cannot, corporately or individually produce and maintain prosperously the same level of goods and services. Her relationship with her trading partners is in stark contrast to kingdoms as late as the British Empire.
Consider Hitler and Japan during World War II. The Saddam Hussein incursion into Kuwait during the early 90s, which always sought only to enrich themselves at the expense of others by war, or threat of war even if it meant bankruptcy to those subdued and subjugated. Meaning, of course, that their relationship was largely compulsory. 4. She is hated of God. Unlike as is the case involving his people, the Jews, he seeks no reconciliation to her. Rather, he issues a stern warning, in recognition that he does in fact have precious souls caught up in her self-delusion, enamored by her wealth, bewitched by her charm. All who call themselves by the name of the only born son are to take stock of themselves and their heading, then, separate completely, coming altogether out from her, or risk suffering the same fate as she, even if they are in fact Christians. 5. Whatever her greatness and power, she can and will be brought down, irretrievably ruined, while at the height of her success, even while global economics is booming, more or less, in only one hour. 6. Her collapse, means shipwreck to economies all over the planet. What this means then is that this Babylon the Great, although definitely a solid end times entity, will never see the trials and trauma of the apocalyptic period. No nation will survive beyond the seal judgments of the apocalypse, living high on the hog. Neither the Vatican, the great whore, nor Rome, the woman riding the beast, who is the birthplace and the location where the whore lives, will be sacked prior to the second half of the so-called Great Tribulation, spanning more than seven years. With the blood of the mentality of past kingdoms running fresh in warmongering veins to within virtually 50 years of our modern backdoor. What's yours is mine. And as soon as I have a big enough stick, and enough bodies to sacrifice on the altar of my greed or need, whichever is strongest, I will come, whoop your butt, and take what you have for myself. It is not difficult to envision what an oddity this Babylon the Great is, as a cosmopolitan, global entity, against the backdrop of all the rest. There will never again be anything else like her. It might be argued that, the concept of nations trading, and flourishing economically, freely, relatively speaking, perhaps, independently, is one foreign to the minds of many a nation, even today. Imagine then the difficulty for John and those living during those days when Rome dictated the foreign policy of the nations under its dominion economic and political trying to envision times like ours. Thus, although her metaphorical designation specifies, city, the reference here is not to a specific city at all, as much as it implies a great nation. Being an end-times entity, where there are no single such great cities that can wield and boast that kind of leverage and influence, there being nothing like it in the past among city, states, kingdoms or nations that leaves only one possible foot to fit this theological imprint, as fashioned, and tendered by Almighty God. Given the current global state of affairs, and, therefore the very real, high probability that there is not likely to ever be anything like it again, that nation cannot but be our very own United States of America. Certainly, this great melting pot can and does fit the profile, in every aspect thereof, to a T. If this is true, then it points up another very subtle perhaps, but pungent truth. The biggest, gravest threat facing the American public right now is neither Al-Qaeda, nor is it radical Islam or the Russians. Rather, it is the all-powerful hand and the instigation behind these man-made dangers we face that poses the greatest danger, that being, the sovereign lord of all the universe himself, Elohim Jehovah, the self-existing one, who lives eternally, in multiple persons.
The man-made evils present are merely tools in his hands, options, a means to the accomplishment of a predetermined end, while at the same time being indelible proof that validates and establishes the credibility of his word the Bible. He has foretold and thereby given plenty of advance warning of his plans to cut things short, in short order. At this moment, all the pieces rest dangerously in place to do just that. Pandora's Box. How to Kill the Superpower. In light of today's awe-inspiring wartime killing technologies, it only seems logical and reasonable to interpret the one-hour time frame within which the greatest man-made political, economic, and military force man has ever known is projected to collapse, as a literal possibility. One said, it seems rational enough, but is it? If indeed the U.S. is in God's economy the only possible shoe that fits the foot of Babylon the Great, as it most assuredly appears to be, is it really sensible to believe that even God can bring down so great, so awesome a world force and military power, so widely dispersed a people as we, in only one hour? I mean, us the United States of America. How utterly absurd, right, after all, are we not a Christian nation and people, in God's eyes to say nothing of our own? Granted, many awesome weapons of mass destruction have surfaced since the turn of the 20th century the most horrifying, for even an industrious power like the U.S., being the hydrogen atomic, nuclear bombs, and nuclear-tipped ICBMs. More horrific than this weapon itself is the fact that they are becoming ever more accessible to unstable, hostile, concerns with their, eye on America, and that, not for good. And yet, there is a greater, more alarming evil than either of these lurking in the wings, as we shall see. One or several nuclear bursts within the shores of the contiguous states can do a lot of damage, but, would that be enough to bring down such an institution, as will be shown by the section on Operation Able Archer, page 170, in light of their understanding of how the U.S. would most likely launch a preemptive first strike against them, the Russians have no intention of ever attempting such a feat with only a handful of their 6,000 or so nuke warheads. How many would it take, and is a conventional nuclear offensive even likely, given the high probability of mutually assured destruction, in retaliation? Again, for a chilling perspective of what will likely transpire in the future, based upon what almost happened in the past, fast forward to the Able Archer article. Also, remember that by God's design, Babylon is to be sacked while relatively strong, and the going for her and the world around her is reasonably good, not while she is weak and vulnerable to the point of being powerless. But, one may well be wondering, is it not always possible, that an enemy force from offshore could, at some point, invade the land to take it by force? And, of course, one cannot but respond with a resounding, yes, highly unlikely though that may be. After all, whatever its faults and weakness, it is still no less the most powerful nation on the planet. So, if a nuke attack within the confines of its normal usage is unseemly, so is this. Without doubt, God himself could do the unthinkable, directly and virtually without effort. But, is that his preferred method? Although he places himself squarely at the helm, the unseen hand guiding and delivering the judgment which will eventually grip her loins, dragging her, without a fight pearls, pedestal, prowess and power down into the dusts, sands and ashes of an everlasting destruction, the evidence suggests otherwise. The ultimate cause will be God. The immediate cause will be the nations. Furthermore, together with today's WMD, 1.3 billion Muslims worldwide, 
makes for interesting and troublesome possibilities. Too many of whom are willing to kill themselves, killing Americans for the prize of celestial sex, with ten virgins. Whether Taliban or Al-Qaeda, Hamas or Fatah, Shia or Sunni, hostile, terrorist sleeper cell groups among 12 million undocumented aliens scattered throughout the nation today, along with growing international dissatisfaction with and resentment toward this country only adds to the fires of an already worrisome situation. That brings us full circle, back to the original concern. What is likely to be the vehicle the mechanical element that God uses to accomplish so dreadful, so terrifying a deed, in only one hour if not his own hand? Consider the sidebar below. Wake-up calls to all of America and to its American churches. Page 171. Gateway to Hell. The Threat. Pandora's Box is a mythological figment of ancient Grecian thought. Herein, as Greek legend would have it, the god Zeus, in anger, commissioned the creation of the first woman, who when given a box, was told that she was never to open it. When placed within a world of men, who had lived happily until she came, curiosity got the best of her, so that the world of men was never the same again. Upon opening that box, she in her disobedience inadvertently released all of the troubles faced by mankind. In some sense, the technological advances upon which modern American society is built, is on the verge of proving itself to be at once a Pandora's box and the Achilles heel of the only way of life the Americans know. Everyone remembers Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and the World War II horror stories behind them each developed and delivered personally by American hands. We know, as well, the inevitable threat that now by consequence never slumbers, resting peacefully perhaps, but no less menacingly. In silence, it daily greets our every waking moment. It is a threat that has been held in check over the years only by jointly held pledges of mutually assured destruction. Today, one of those original players, being seriously weakened, does nothing to lessen that threat. Thanks in large part to the weaker player, more weak and unstable, trigger-happy, players now dot the global landscape. Eager for recognition and difficult or impossible to control, fidgety nullifiers of an otherwise effective deterrent to the now inevitable. But, this is only one half of the overall threat. The threat, within a threat. Founded perhaps squarely upon the pillars of one curious query in 1939. What's going to happen if we hit this uranium atom with a neutron? Pandora's box was formally opened before the eyes of the world in Japan almost 80 years ago, the 6th of August 1945. Consequently, there is now known to have been a very real, very viable, now pliable, and unimaginably potent threat, within that original threat. It was one neither perceived nor understood at the time, although it had been demonstrated, well in advance. With many nations wishing to see the demise of the U.S., none being individually, or corporately able to bring that to pass without enormous risk to themselves, it is within this threat within the threat where lies the arrowhead or the venomous fangs now poised to pierce the Achilles heel of the strongest nation on earth. Does one think all this to be strange? Is it not even more bizarre, when one considers that the nation itself, effectively, has been a leader on the road to its own desolation that, as the country, and its churches even now arrogantly deny the practicality of the word of the very God who foretold of its brief, but calamitous day of doom? The blueprint for her desolation will be one for which she was the principal architect, having laid the original groundwork. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this ends another edition of the Bible Prophecy Masterclass.
Prayerfully, you have been and are being blessed by these highly informative studies, and, we hope that you will tell others about them so that they too can be blessed and prepared to warn the lost, as they contribute to the winning of many souls to a saving knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We hope also that you will plan to be with us next time for episode number 21 of this podcast. Until then, may the good Lord bless and keep you.